want to introduce our two speakers today. Dr. Heather Walker-Peterson is Chair and Assistant Professor of English. She graduated from Northwestern and she has a master's degree from University of North Dakota and a PhD from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. She's held various positions here at Northwestern, but she returned two years ago to the position she now holds as chair of her department. And she teaches classes such as linguistics, grammar, composition, and writing theory and ethics. Our second speaker today will be Dr. Jonathan Den Hartog, who's the chair of the history department. Dr. Den Hartog graduated from Hillsdale College, and he has a master's degree and a PhD from Notre Dame. He's been at University of Northwestern since 2006, and he teaches courses like honors, history of civilization, as well as courses in American history. So please welcome Dr. Peterson to the stage. All right, this is a drawing of Puddle Glum by my eight-year-old daughter, Ruthie. Puddle Glum is a character from C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. You know him as a marsh wiggle, right? Marsh Wiggle in Narnia who joins two children, Jill and Eustace, who've been charged by Aslan to look for the missing Prince William in the underworld. When I was in my first summer of my PhD program in English, I printed images of Puddlegrum off the internet and taped them on the walls around my desk. I really needed Puddlegrum. During a kind of climactic point of the silver chair, Puddleglum, the two children, and the prince are being enchanted by the queen of the underworld. She throws a green powder on the hearth. She starts playing a stringed instrument, and they start to get kind of drowsy as she sings and asks them some questions. She convinces them that Narnia and Aslan are only in their imagination because when she asks them to describe Narnia and Aslan, they say things like, well, that's, the sun's like a lamp. And do you know what a cat is? Aslan's like a cat. Suddenly, Puddleglum rallies. He marches over to the fire, and with a bare foot, he stamps it out and stamps the burning powder out, and that greenish smoke kind of disappears, and he declares the following. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that, in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. Suppose this black pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. Well, it strikes me as a pretty poor one. And that's a funny thing when you come to think about it. We're just babies making things up. Making up a game, if you're late. But four babies playing a game to make a play world which rips your real world hollow. That's why I'm going to stand by the play world. I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't an Aslan to lead it. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. Doesn't that make you want to cheer? What Lewis was doing in that passage was responding to the forces of modernism. 
the idea that if empirical research did not give obvious and direct evidence of God, then there must not be a God. Just as if the children looked at a cat to explain who Aslan was, then there must not have been an Aslan. In my PhD program, I was in a culture of postmodernism. A few of my professors had reached the excesses of it. One of them said during class that the attack on the Twin Towers during 9-11 was a social construction. He believed that we could not have confident knowledge to say that there was a reality that existed outside of ourselves, including God. In that culture, if I was to promote one overarching story of the world that was better, I was considered arrogant and grabbing for cultural power. But like Puddleglum, I wanted to hold on to that story despite the critique against it. My question was, how to do that? Wasn't it my job to witness to my colleagues? And yet, as I was quickly to find out, most of them had heard the story of the gospel. They just did not believe it. And the way it had been presented to them, they did indeed judge as arrogant. The campus where my PhD program was housed has a large open space similar to our campus green. That space is called the Oak Grove. The building with the English department faces the Oak Grove. On that particular side of the Oak Grove, a small hill called a knoll rises. At the top of the knoll, a patch of grass has been rubbed bare. This is the spot where preachers come from off campus to preach to the students walking by on the sidewalk. As they face the portion of campus where the English department is, they shout toward a sound canyon between two sets of buildings and their voices bounce back and can be heard all over the Oak Grove. On the slide up there is one of those preachers. He was not the one I heard, the one who read scriptures about sins that were sending the students to hell. Was this faithful presence? Was this how to share my faith and stand up for truth? This week, the College of Art and Humanities has based their theme of faithful presence on a book by James Davison Hunter, a Christian sociologist. So I have a copy, several of us do, if you want to see it. Hunter points out that the ways conservative Christians have tried to transform culture has been ineffective. For example, instead of staying in institutions of secular arts and entertainment, we have chartered our own. He notes that both the Jewish communities and gay communities who are minorities in the United States have had a huge influence on culture because they have remained in those institutions. The culture wars have not worked. As Dr. Matt Miller has said as he prepared for this week of chapel, James Davison Hunter's book To Change the World has suggested that believers have often chosen the wrong tools as we attempt to push back the evil and brokenness that surrounds and sadden us. We have chosen, chosen strategies of manipulation over the values of God's kingdom. We have valued celebrity status more than long-term contribution. We have pragmatically viewed our career opportunities as platforms for sharing our own opinions rather than as settings to reflect his grace, wisdom, and truth.
instead of the culture wars, where it seems as if we are shouting at people. Instead of the culture wars, where it seems as if we are shouting at people who are not listening, as that campus pastor was, we can have a faithful presence. In the words of Hunter, our calling requires that we be faithfully present through the institutions we live in, the church first and foremost, but other institutions of which we are a part as well. Here, too, individually and collectively, we direct ourselves toward the flourishing of others through actions and structures that embody sacrificial love. I'm going to read one more quote by Hunter, and then we'll unpack these. Indeed, when our various tasks are done in ways that acknowledge God, God is present and he is glorified. Such tasks may not be redeeming, but they can provide a foretaste of the coming kingdom. Inquiries, scholarship, and learning with an awareness of the goodness of God's created order is a discovery of what is truly higher than higher education, and not least, reflecting the beauty of God's creation in art or music is nothing, nothing less than an act of worship. In short, fidelity, which means faithfulness, to the highest practices of vocation before God is consecrated and itself transformational in its effect. So what does it mean to have a faithful presence in today's world? Can we participate in a way that leads to others flourishing? For Hunter, it means not always directly witnessing or those tasks that seem redeeming, but instead showing love through supporting others flourishing and having fidelity to the highest practices of vocation, meaning working hard and with excellence. In my PhD program, it meant being more like the Apostle Paul at Mars Hill in Acts 17. And yet at the same time, not being quite like the Oak Grove preacher I had heard. Paul had been invited to speak at Mars Hill by the philosophers in Athens, just as I had been invited to enter my PhD program after I applied. In his Mars Hill speech, Paul used lines from one of their own philosophers and one of their own poets. In him... We live and move and have our being. And, for we are indeed his offspring. He used these lines from them to show them the truth of the gospel. So this is what faithful presence looked like for me in my PhD program. First, and my writing theory students will be familiar with this, right? First, I needed to resonate. I needed to really, truly listen without always arguing. I also needed to affirm what was true and what others said, as the Apostle Paul had done. My colleagues were made in the image of God, so they did have some truth to speak to me. In my class on literacy, missionaries who had brought literacy to indigenous peoples were attacked for being colonizers. I had to agree that some of those missionaries had done things, as my friends had claimed, Sometimes they had enforced Western ways or even had forced children not to speak their native language in school, as in the case of Native Americans in the U.S. I had to listen deeply for critique of historical Christianity, and it was really hard. I also affirmed my colleagues' desire to flourish and to help others flourish. 
Most of my colleagues were deeply invested in providing accessible education for those marginalized in the United States. That was a good thing, and I encouraged them in their endeavors. However, I did not hide my faith. Within a couple weeks, everyone had figured out I was a conservative Christian. I had to resist things I was being taught that were questionable. I asked good questions, and sometimes I was called on to speak Christian truth. In one class, we were discussing different philosophical approaches to our field. My professor wrote several ones on the board and asked us to claim the one we had the most congruency with. We went around in a circle, and I was last. Everyone in my class, including my professor, claimed neo-Marxism. In neo-Marxism, I could agree with components such as the need to critique my own underlying assumptions and the desire to help marginalized peoples, but I could not claim it. Neo-Marxism asserts that we can have no confidence in an outside reality. I said that my approach was a narrative one, the reason being that I am part of an overarching story. Finally, in my program, I also worked very hard. I did good work and was faithful to my calling as a student. Most of my classmates and professors respected my work. An unexpected benefit of having a faithful presence was this. To undergo a critique of Christianity, I had to practice dependence on Jesus in a way I never had before. Like the father in Mark 9.24, I found myself crying out constantly, I believe, but then also saying, help my unbelief. And I mean it, like, daily, <laughs> calling that out. My dissertation advisor said this, it's not much of a faith if it can't be critiqued. And he was right. My faith became stronger. I became puddle glum. The benefit was not just for me. At the end of my first term, I was hanging out at a local pub where my colleagues and I gathered weekly. I did not drink alcohol, just so you know, right? <laughs> but meeting at the pub was a way to be in community with my colleagues. The, that night, at the end of my term, I was sitting with the only other conservative Christian in my program a man who was a faculty member at Bethany Lutheran College in Mankato. Another friend to whom I had grown close came up to both of us and said, okay, you two are both Christians. What's the deal with Jesus? Why is he so important to you? And then God gave us the opportunity to share our faith directly, witnessing from scripture. That day, our friend did not proclaim that he turned towards Jesus, but I trust that God has him in a journey and that we played a part. I believe because we had had a faithful presence, the kind that James Davison Hunter has promoted, our friend was willing and ready to talk about the gospel in God's own. Thanks to Dr. Peterson for what she had to share. I really appreciated that, that personal narrative and her, her reflections on the challenges of being faithfully present 
uh, to the larger world where she found herself. Now, uh, I find I want to take a slightly different approach, uh, minimal Narnia references, sorry, <laughs> but to argue in the same direction, uh, to help us appreciate what types, what type of kingdom we should be pursuing. What should our vision of engagement and activity in public life look like? In the process, I hope in a brief period to show that we can bring together biblical insights with elements of history and political thought. It strikes me that the study of history and politics can indeed bring unique insights for helping us think about our callings as both citizens of a heavenly kingdom and as citizens of an earthly one. The place to start, then, is with a particular vision of understanding God's kingdom from a biblical perspective. Here, I want us to get that we live in a particular moment, one that is in between. Now, if you've had progress of redemption, and I hope most of you have, I hope this makes sense to you, right? We'll dust off some of those cobwebs. You've talked about the great arc of God's redemptive history, from creation to fall to redemption, to consummation. But here we are, in the church age, as we live between the times. So, on one hand, yeah, I feel like we skipped some slides there. Well, they won't shut us up, we'll just uh, go with it. On the one hand, the kingdom is already. With Christ coming, the kingdom of God is truly inaugurated. And it grows wherever, shut up, wherever, whenever people are submitted to the rule of Christ the King. Now, Jesus described this lifestyle of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. Our lives are to embody the Beatitudes because we acknowledge a King. Jesus prophesied that this kingdom would grow. It would grow like a mustard seed or spread like leaven through, through bread. It's this vision of the kingdom as the rule of Christ that we hear in the great Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper. Let me just get Abraham Kuyper to come up. Kuyper came to America to give a series of lectures. These were gathered into a book called Lectures on Calvinism. And of course, you can read the, read the whole thing. That's recommended. But in this book, he makes this audacious statement. Oh, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So I think this is an important insight right here that in thinking about ki God's kingdom, there is nothing under the claim of Christ. As the risen and uh, heavenly exalted king, Christ rightfully holds all sovereign authority and makes all sovereign claims. And there is nothing that we do lawfully on this campus in our lives that doesn't uh, fit into this idea. Right? Our studies lay under that claim. Our extracurriculars, whether we're singing, performing, competing, 
uh, on a court or on a field, but our family lives come under that claim. Our leisure time comes under that claim. Our entertainment consumption comes under that claim. What do I choose to, to stream? Our work comes under that claim. So let this be a challenge to all of us, right? Just in passing, this isn't our main point, but maybe this is a takeaway for you. Is there a piece of your life over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, is calling mine that you have yet to relinquish? If so, respond. Now, the great culmination of this kingdom growth, the kingdom that we are uh, anticipating, is articulated in Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So this is what we look forward to. This is what our hearts say, yes, this is what we desire. And if you recall, this is also the text for Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, right? Before we all stand and sing Hallelujah, Hallelujah. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We sing hallelujah. Our hearts resonate with that because of Christ's rule, because what is held out before us. And yet, the kingdom is also not yet. not yet. If you look around, if you read in the news, if you're awake to the world at all, you'll notice that this whole kingdom experience, this beautiful kingdom, is not what we entirely experience. Not as individuals, not as a society. The amount of savagery, cruelty, wickedness is easy to catalog, right? And that's true in the Twin Cities. We can find lots of problems here as much as the other side of the world, right? You don't, you don't have to go to other war-torn countries. It's easy for us to see that the kingdom is not fully realized. Now, on an individual level, we realize our sanctification is not complete. It's also very clear that the king kingdoms and institutions of the world are not controlled by the kingdom vision. The spheres in which we move are not yielded to Christ's control. And among these things, of course, one element, not the only element, but one element of our common life is represented by political involvement and political commitment. Now, can anyone seriously claim that our national politics is really directed to the glory of God and the advancement of Christ's rule? Okay, that's a laugh line, right? <laughs> you feel, feel free to pick yourselves off the floor, right? I, I, I think we're not there yet. If that's the case, what do we do, right? We need to demonstrate faithful engagement, faithful presence. So in this between the times, I think we have a guidance in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 says, in putting everything in subjection to him, so in subjection to Christ, he, the father, left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. 
But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This passage recognizes that not everything is subject to Christ at present. At present, though, we don't see everything subject. We are in the not yet portion of the Christian life. So what do we do? We look to Jesus. Thus Christ, who is humbled, provides a model of humility, of endurance, and of hope towards the future state when the kingdom will be fully accomplished. Ah, so what does this have to do with politics? Let me suggest that we have to keep both of these pieces that we've talked about, the already and the not yet, in place when we look to the political realm. If we only thought not yet, we might conclude that politics is evil, and there's nothing we can do about it until Christ rules fully. This is an escapist answer. Run away. On the other hand, if we only emphasize the already component, we might become triumphalistic and seek power for its own sake. Instead, what do we need to do? Live faithfully in the present, which forces us to look both backward and forward. Now, in this endeavor, it strikes me that some of the great minds of the church have wrestled with these issues. We don't have to take them on only by ourselves. These aren't easy questions. Therefore, can we find wisdom in the past? And here, voices from history can help us think through some of these issues. Very briefly, we could think about Augustine, right? Augustine talked about living in two kingdoms, that we live in the citizenship of the city of God, even as we're also citizens of the city of man. And Augustine thinks about how can we live in those kingdoms simultaneously. Thomas Aquinas sought to understand how God's rule is mediated through nature, through natural laws, and through human rulers, and gave us useful tools for analysis. John Calvin helped us think about how a church could be reformed and even how communities could be reformed and how even rulers and princes could be reformed. So there's some insights. And even John Winthrop on the far right, who was an early leader in New England, called on Puritans in his day to demonstrate Christian love for each other to shape society. So here's just four thinkers from the past who have spoken into this very question that we're raising. But for my mind, I want to bring in one more individual as a great example, and that would be John Witherspoon. Now, Witherspoon is fascinating. He was born in Scotland in the 18th century, studied there, and was ordained a minister in Scotland. There he defended traditional Christian beliefs against those who wanted to water them down, to relax doctrine for what was fashionable. But then Witherspoon was called to be the president of a small college in the American colonies called Princeton. You may have heard of it. From that post, he would go on to influence many leaders. But then he was faced with a dilemma of politics, namely 
the colonies are heading towards independence. What should they do with that? It's at that point that Witherspoon thought through the issue and preached a sermon that I think touches greatly on some of these points. It was entitled, The Dominion of Providence Over the Passions of Man. In this sermon, he begins with a general overview of God's providential rule, right? Where to start? Even with evil in this world, God can restrain it and turn it to his glory. So he said, our blessed redeemer, by his death, finished his work, overcame principalities and powers, and made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in the cross. That seems to me like an already assertion. And he calls his hearers to the most important factor, which is repentance and saving faith. Suffer me to beseech you, to give you warning not to rest satisfied with a form of godliness, denying the power thereof. There can be no true religion till there be a discovery of your lost state by nature and practice and an unfeigned acceptance of Christ Jesus as he is offered in the gospel. So he says, start gospel-centric. Only then does Witherspoon turn to political matters. And he says, let's be wise and prudent about this. The I observe that if your cause is just, your principles are pure, your conduct is prudent, you need not fear the multitude of opposing hosts, he says. So, the cause for which America is now in arms, he says, the cause of justice and of liberty and of human nature is worth going, right? If it's followed, he says, we can proceed from a deep and general conviction that our civil and religious liberties, uh, and consequently in a great measure the temporal and eternal happiness of us and our posterities depend on the issue, right? The stakes are high, and it's worth thinking about how to respond. Well, he says, while after reaching a position, then carry through with action. What follows, he is the best friend of American liberty who is most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion and who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down profanity and immorality of every kind. Well, as time is getting away from us, what can we take from this? What are our, what, what are our final takeaways? Let me suggest, first of all, that we live in an already not yet kingdom. Both pieces are true, and we have to square our, our activity, our engagement, and our goals to that reality. Secondly, we need to value politics indeed, but also realize that politics is not the greatest good because God's kingdom is concerned with so much more. It's concerned with souls, and it's concerned with the creation of culture, of beauty. Third, we need to gain wisdom to engage life in politics. And in passing, I think I'd say, how do we do that? By studying the past and political structures. History and politics is a great place to engage these questions. And finally, we live in hope, trusting in Christ's ultimate rule. So where is our stance for a faithful presence? Hopeful faithful engagement in the world for the common good. So in a hopeful endurance, let me say, that's a great place to end and to send us all back to our work. So thank you and God bless you for today.